0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Narrative Medicine Rounds. Come on up. We have some seats up front if people are still looking for a place to sit. My name is Deepu Gowda. I'm a general internist at Columbia, and I'm the course director for Foundations of Clinical Medicine. It's the course in our med school where the first two years students learn to go to the bedside and take an interview and do the physical exam. Um, And I'm the director of clinical practice for the program in Narrative Medicine. I want you to take a look at your calendars and plan for the rest of the fall. Narrative Medicine rounds occur on the first Wednesday of every month from 5 to 7. November 4th we'll have presentations from contributors of the literary magazine Aesopus including our very own Daniel Spencer back in the back there waving. Um, on December 2nd we'll have Rick Gudotti, a photographer of human diversity He's the founder of Positive Exposure, an organization created to affect a sea change in societal attitudes towards individuals living with genetic difference. Um, So I want to welcome Nellie Herman up. She is the uh, creative director in the program of Narrative Medicine and will introduce our speaker tonight. Um,
1: Where is our speaker? Oh, he's being photographed in the back. Um, Maybe I'll... Do you want to come up here? I don't want to make you come... Yeah, okay. (laughs) All right. So, hi everybody. Um, It is my tremendous honor tonight to introduce the writer Akhil Sharma to all of you. Sharma is the author of two novels, An Obedient Father, which won the Penn-Hemingway Award and was a New York Times Notable Book of the Year, and Family Life, which he will speak to us about today picked as one of the 10 best books of 2014 by the New York Times and for which he won the Folio Prize. It took me a really long time to write this introduction and I'm still, I (parentheses) I'm still very unhappy with it um, because my feelings about this book, Family Life, um, are so deeply personal and beyond the realm of the easily accessible. So I just wanted to say up front, I've done my best, um, but I still feel like there are really no actual adequate words to introduce this great writer to you and this brilliant book. Um, The basic plot of family life can be summarized quickly and matches in many ways the timeline of our own speaker's life. Ajay, Ajay, I warned Akhil that I was going to butcher the name, but Ajay Mishra is eight years old when he moves from India to America with his parents and one older brother, then 12. His brother is the pride of the family, ambitious and high achieving. He is accepted to the Bronx High School of Science with much joy and fanfare, but not long after is in a horrible accident, diving into a pool and hitting his head on the bottom where he lies for three minutes, enough time to become severely brain damaged. Everything changes for the family in those three minutes. They become caretakers, forced to accept a great loss while also living with the daily requirements of a body in great need. Ajay is thrust into being the only healthy son, the new achiever, though still his needs are frequently overlooked and put second, rightly or wrongly, to those of his brother. Among many other things, it is a story of what it is to grow up in a particular set of difficult circumstances, inevitably private and shameful ones having to do with illness in the body, loss that lingers and lives on in your living room. It is a story of what happens to a family that has dealt a bad hand and has no choice but to bear up under it anger, bravery, love, confusion, belief, hope, and more anger, parents struggling to survive, and throughout it all, a boy who is helplessly becoming a man in the midst of a new country and his family's new circumstances. This book, when I read it last spring, really hit me with the force of a hurricane. I suffered my own series of family tragedies when I was young. And I know in my own way how it is to grow up in and around the shame and confusion of family secrets and pain. I also know, because I did it myself, how difficult it is to write a novel born out of your own life story. I couldn't believe, I still can't believe, what Akhil Sharma has done with this book. How deeply true it is. How sharp and painful and alive it is. How much it expresses so much that actually cannot be expressed in language except in this way in a story, through fiction, through characters that live and suffer between the covers of a book. Our circumstances, of course, are so very different, but it is a testimony to this book that I want to share Ajay's story with others so that they can understand what it was like for me. After I read Family Life, I rushed to invite Akil to speak to us here at Rounds, not only because of how much I love this book, but also because it was clear to me that this is a person that has much to teach us not only about writing and about how to make a book that works but about those two very words, narrative and medicine, and how one might be able to work as the other. This is a man that has, to me, done what so often feels undoable. He has spoken the unspeakable, crafted the unshapable, looked straight in the face of terrible truths that most of us turn away from, and then turned those truths into beautiful sentences, images like arrows, and a book that we can not only enjoy but cherish a book that comforts as much as it destroys. What is narrative medicine if not this? I know that writing Family Life was no easy task for our guest. It took him 12 and a half years, and he whittled the current book out of 7,000 written pages. I can only imagine how torturous the experience of making this book must have been, but I want to uh, out loud officially thank him for it, and I expect that for those of you who have read this book, I am speaking for you as well. I can say truthfully, I don't think I've ever read a book that has moved and amazed me quite like this one did, both as a fiction writer and as a human. So we are very grateful to you, Akil, for this book, and grateful that it has brought you here to be with us today. So I will get out of the way and let you speak. Thank you.
2: But, um what a generous introduction. You know, when I, it's hard to take in praise, you know, uh, at least for me. I, I often think they must be making this stuff up.
0: Not so
2: know. The so Because um, you know, the, this is about narratives, I'll talk a little bit um, about the construction of the book and how it came about so it took 12 and a half years uh, i wrote 7000 pages i'm not a big believer in writers block you know uh, my personal belief is you know you sit down and you and you begin writing uh, and you just churn out page after page after page that's easy much easier to revise than it is to um, then construct something new and so i would i would sit with um, with a, a stopwatch and i would write for 5 hours every day my, and if a phone call came I would stop the stopwatch if I had to get up to use the bathroom I would stop the stopwatch and my goal was simply to sit there I could just sit there and not do anything right? but I had to sit there for five hours and if you were sitting there anyway you might as well write uh, and so that's how that's how those 7,000 pages 7,000 pages, three computers three chairs uh, the and it's you know it's hard to here's here's how it began uh... the novel Um, i have a british editor who is views him the role of an editor is to edit the role of an editor is also to do the song and dance on behalf of the writer so my british editor was in new york for some reason and went to a party and uh... he met an editor at the New Yorker and and told this woman that you know oh, you think you have good stories but really Akhil Sharma has written this extraordinary story uh, and so she emailed me and asked me that said that she would heard about this story and want and wondered if she could see it I had not written a story mm-hmm. you know uh, it was in December uh, and so you know if the New Yorker is asking you for a story you should write a story Uh, and so I sent her an email saying that oh I'm still revising it I'll send it to you when it's done (laughs) and so I began thinking what would be what could I quickly write a story about you know and the experience that I know most well most fully is the experience of dealing with illness because my uh, I have an older brother who is severely brain damaged from an accident in in a swimming pool and I have no sort of, I don't feel any shyness about almost anything, mm-hmm. right? I, that's just not, you know, mm-hmm. I have no shyness about saying, man, I feel envy about this person, or boy, wouldn't it be nice to be taller? Or, you know, you know what do you think of my shoes? You know, I have almost no, <laughs> I have this almost autistic level of uh, uh, lack of discretion, you know? or indifference, actually, to people's opinion. Uh, I think this comes from the fact that, you know, my mother was a very difficult person. Uh, and I often grew up with the sense, with the idea that if my mother doesn't love me, why should I care what you think?
3: <laughs>
0: right?
2: I mean, really, I think that was the, that's the dark motivation behind it, you know? Uh, the, so I began thinking, OK, I need to write a story. I'm going to write about my brother how do I concoct this thing into a story? I mean, it was literally sort of mechanical. And I began thinking, okay, it can't actually be about the illness because there's no plot to it. So then what do I have? Then the plot that I have is this character changing or this character's growing awareness of the fact that, he, that his brother is not going to get well. Okay, but how do you do that without being sentimental? And how do you do it without it being obvious? Because the reader, of course, knows that the child is not going to get better, right? In any sort of r- realistic story, in any story which is connected to the world, uh, he knows that somebody, the reader would know that in a situation like this, uh, the child is, you know, once a brain has has been damaged, it's not like it's gonna become fine again, right? It's like uh, once you break a base, you know, it's, you can, it's not really going to uh, get better. So I began thinking, okay, then I need... If the story is about this thing, about the child's growing consciousness, about that things are not going to get better, then I need something to hide the fact that that's what this is about, and I need something which will mark the change, uh, that mark the change in his growing awareness and so i said okay then i what i can do is i can have them have these conversations and each conversation is going to be slightly different Uh, and i need the the conversations to be weird because you know whenever you're writing about a very sad thing you want it to you want some energy which is going in the opposite direction of the sadness you know it's like that Beatles song help you know that song is sung cheerfully for a reason because nobody wants to listen to a sad song sung sadly. you know it becomes boring. Uh, and so I thought, okay, I will write this story. This kid is going to begin talking to God. Uh, we will between this, there're going to be various minor things that are going to occur and the uh, and by the end, he's going to begin asking God for stuff, and by the end he's going to realize that there is no God uh, and that if done, if nothing, if certain issues are not confronted head on, will act as a way of uh, plot. Am I making sense? Yes. Okay. So, I thought, all right, that's going to be the structure of, it, of this thing, let me write it quickly. And I wrote it very, very quickly. I wrote it maybe in a week or so, uh, and it was, it's, it's, and it was an intensely pleasurable experience. Uh, I would begin writing it, I would come upon a problem and I would go jog or do something else like that. And I finished the story and I thought this is a good story. Uh, And I sent it off to the New Yorker, they bought it, it got published. My experience, so then at that point I was an investment banker. And you know I hated my job, I just really despised it and I was thinking, (coughs) And I was planning to quit, and I quit. And I was thinking, oh, I'll write a book, and I'll use... Everybody suggested that, that the story that had been in The New Yorker could be a seed for a novel. The problem is, even though I began writing the novel, I didn't know how to solve the problems that, that, that the novel contained, the situ- that the plot contained uh for the problem of i the problem when I was writing that short story, I knew that there was basically no plot, and so I had to become it had to become a story about sensibility and about this child's growing awareness uh and so and the way to handle it and to sort of avoid that issue av- avoid the the obviousness of it was by doing something strange, like having him talk to God. The problem is you know. What's cute or on with 18 pages is annoying with 225 pages. Uh, so that was a solution that I knew I couldn't have. Uh, and I, when I, s- I spent a lot of time thinking about it, and I just didn't know how I could write this book. But I had, you know I, by that point I had quit my job, and so I thought, oh, you know, <laughs> I have to at least pretend to be doing something. So every day my wife would leave for work and I would go sit at, the, at my desk and begin writing this thing. And it was just, it was a horror. I mean it was truly, you know, it's, you know, you think in your first year or second year or third year that somehow you're going to come up with a solution. Uh, and then you realize that you don't, you really have no idea how to write this book know, and that you've sort of presented yourself, that I had presented myself to my wife as somebody who was writing a book, whereas all I was doing was sitting at, at my computer typing. Uh, and that there was no reason that this thing could turn into a book, and certainly no reason that this thing could turn into a decent book. Mostly, mo- men so many people try to write books and spend years writing them and they are unable to write these books. Right? Then there are a small subgroup who finish these books. And of that small group, subgroup, there's an even small, smaller group which is able to publish them. And then and a tiny, tiny number of people who publish a book, and other people say, oh, this is worthwhile, that we got something out of reading it. Uh, and I had no, no real sense that that would be my case. Uh, the... so I began writing it, writing it, writing it, and I was, um, at some point I began to think, it... I, I spent my entire 30s writing this book, you know, the entire decade of my 30s was spent on this book. You know, I say that, you know, this is a, I shattered my youth against this book, you know, that was sort of like, every day it was like chewing stones, uh, at some point I began to have panic attacks. Uh, I would be sitting at, a, uh, at the computer and I would be looking at the screen and suddenly the screen would go watery. And then I would feel like somebody had punched me in the chest. Uh, and my wife was enormously supportive. You know, She was at work and she would say, you know, if you ever want, just call me and I'll come home and we can go for a walk. We can do something. And so I never felt alone. I, I felt alone, but I never felt unloved. Uh, by my, you know, I began doing all sorts of things trying to figure out how to write this book because the book that I was trying to write was a book which has you know in real life what occurs is A occurs, A causes B, B causes C and then at some point G wanders in and then there's N standing in the corner hectoring you you know that's sort of what life is like—that uh, there isn't plot, that there isn't uh, causation—and so I began thinking, how can I solve this problem? And so I began looking at all these different writers. Uh, I began—I uh, first read read books where the ending is given away, because I thought, you know, if you can give away, if you give away the ending, that creates a false sense of shape and that shape will act as a... Uh, will act... that false sense of shape will act as a substitute for plot. So I read um, the A House for Mr. Biswas, Radevsky March, this book by Hajin called Waiting, a bunch of books like that. Uh, the For me, the problem with books like that is that if you give away the ending, at some point the energy gets sapped. The energy of the narrative gets sapped. So for example, you know, I have what I want for, for, to occur when, when somebody is reading my book is that they can't put it down. I want it to be irresistible. I think this is due to the fact that I felt uh, ignored as a child. And so I want to write a book which, if you begin, you will not be able to stop it. Uh, that's sort of my, my standard as to what a, what a book should be doing, what something I write should be doing so from so i tried i did write books various drafts uh where i give away the ending where i gave away the ending and then progressed uh that didn't work then i tried books which are books that are almost purely of memory of of recall so remembrance of things past uh, or housekeeping and i tried that and you know honestly to me these are good books, like Housekeeping is a good book and Remembrance of Things Past might be the greatest book of the 20th century, greater even than Ulysses. Uh, for me, there's a, that sort of spending time recalling, for me, there's a, there's a decadence to it. You know, life itself is so fantastic and interesting. You know, every single day life is so wonderful that to spend that much energy recalling feels like one has infinite time, you know, and, I, and and this is one of the issues of being a writer, that you have your own sensibility, you have your own senses, priorities, and so it's hard to lift styles from other writers and, put, and take, take it over, you know, and just directly subst- put it onto your writing. I tried reading Tolstoy um, because I thought, you know, maybe if I can do... Uh, uh, if I can have that sort of deeply commanding voice, then I can have coincidence inside my novels. Uh, and that will substitute for causation. Am I making sense when I talk about causation? Uh, so, so I read, of course, I reread you know, most of Tolstoy. Even bizarre, obscure works, you know, such as, you know, all these Christian novellas, such as they Walked in, in Light, a story of early Christian times, which I don't know anybody who has ever read this thing. <laughs> you, know, uh, I, you know, I read everything, I, I was so desperate for an answer that I would do almost anything. So I would read these works and then I would copy pages of them, right? Just to see if there was something that, I could, that could be gained from replicating the physical gestures of these words. Uh, I did things like, I read uh, a lot of Tolstoy backwards. So I read uh, Tolstoy's novella Childhood Backwards, you know, so I read the last sentence and the second to last sentence and the third to last sentence. Because obviously, you know, as a writer you're trying to hide all the tricks, right? And so, and I'm, so I wanted to find out how exactly he was generating these effects. And so you you learn all these weird things when you read something backwards. So for example, There's an enormous amount of physical motion in Tolstoy. He doesn't use visual description the way normally um, writers use it. So he will will almost never come into a room and say, oh, the room was rectangular, there was an arch, there were these strange light fixtures. Uh, Instead he'll have various characters talking or doing something. And that is the way he generates life. So that's an example of a weird detail that I discovered. Or another thing is, you know, when you're reading uh, War and Peace, you, are, you regularly experience this effect where you're reading something and suddenly you begin feeling that you're floating, right? And you're floating and you're watching the room. Mm-hmm. And so the, the way that he generates this effect is that he'll have a, describe a character from the outside and let's, let you sort of guess as to what the character is like right? What Pierre is like. And then in the next paragraph, he'll transition inside the point of view. So you're looking at the world from his point of view. And then in the third paragraph, he'll pull, he'll have again sort of that detached point of view. And doing it in (coughs) very, very rapid succession generates, confuses the reader in a very particular way so that the reader experiences that sense of floating. And so, you know, I learned all these crazy techniques, absolutely crazy techniques, totally useless (laughs) for my purposes, totally useless, right? Uh, Again, because I have a particular vision of what is true, right? And I can learn techniques, but I can't stop being me. You know, so if I learn French, I'm still going to be saying the same, I'm still going to be me in French, right? Uh, I'm still in the same way that in Hindi I'm the same person that I am in English. Uh, And so I learned these techniques but they were not, I couldn't get them, I couldn't write the book. I could write no end of pages, I just couldn't write a book that worked. And then I was reading uh, Chekhov. So the problem that I had was that what I was writing was intensely boring. Intensely boring. And this was not just me saying it. I showed drafts to people and they said, This is terrible, Akhil. You know, or, you know, I wouldn't have read this except you're my friend. You know the, uh, so it was intensely boring, and I was thinking, and I sort of sensed as to why it was boring. The reason it was boring was nothing was happening the reason nothing was happening is that this was a static situation. You know, if you're writing about sickness, the problem is very little happens, right? You know, you have this situation where somebody is sick, they're sick, over time the situation becomes slightly worse, over time they bother you in a slightly different way, you know, or you do the same stupid annoying stuff every single day, right? Every single day my parents would start, would uh, would begin playing prayers on this tape recorder. Every single morning, and I would wake up, and you know, with the sound of temple bells uh, blasting, then I would uh, go downstairs, and my brother would be naked, my father, and I would begin oiling him down with coconut oil. Uh, every single day, we would put him in a, you know, in a wheelchair. And how to, how to write about these things that are repetitive? Uh, and acknowledge the weight of the fact that you're doing this every single day, that you can be heroic for a day, you can be heroic for two days. And then after a couple of weeks, you begin thinking, holy shit, this is my life. Mm-hmm. This is what I'm stuck with. Uh, how, do you hand, how do you write about things where things occur and they don't actually cause change? So this, I knew that this was my problem that a reader would begin reading something, uh, I would describe, you know, I would make a scene visceral the way that one makes scenes visceral using sound and smell, you know, so that the reader was really locked, pressed into that reality, and then they would exit that scene. But not much would have occurred inside that scene, right? Because not much, not much would have occurred inside that scene which causes change. And so the purpose of going into, a, into the scene is weak and the purpose of exiting the scene is weak. Does that make sense, right? Uh, and so, you, you know, I'm, so I'm spending my five hours every single day sitting there, looking at this computer, feeling desperate and sad. Uh, and then I'm also reading, you know, I'm just reading di- wildly. You know, So I'm reading everything. I'm reading anything that might be at all useful. I'm reading Little Women. I'm reading Silence of the Lambs. I'm reading uh, anything that might have any possible use to me in getting out of this stupid situation that I have found myself in. Right? The stupid situation is I have committed myself and thus my family's resources to generating this book. If I cannot generate this book, I have to return my advance and I and I don't know what's going to happen in terms of my career and getting a job, right? So it was really there was this real sense of having a financial gun to my head. So one day I'm reading Chekhov, and I'm think you know, Chekhov is he is strange in that oftentimes there's very little visual description. And Nabokov said that there's an even gray tone to Chekhov, uh, the that there's almost sort of a dove-like gray to him, and so I'm reading him, and I realize that he's he writes almost everything in in present tense or with the feel of present tense. So I begin thinking, this is exactly opposite of what I want. You know, what I my problem is that the present moment is too great. His style is based on the fact that the pre- that everything is the present moment. So I'm reading him and I of course notice certain basic things about him, like he uses very little visual description. Oftentimes the, the reason there's a sense of grayness to him is, is that very little, when things very little actually gets described. Things are merely suggested. So you know the op- the opening of Lady with a Little Dog is people were talking. Uh, there was a new person on the uh, on the embankment. Uh, a little lady, a lady with a little dog, right? Th- that's sort of the opening. The fact that it begins the only visual is at the very end of the sentence means that our People were talking, so it's just voices. All of that is occurring sort of in the dark. Uh, there was a there was a new woman on the uh, on the embankment. This is sort of a visual, but it's not much of a visual. It's more of a rumor, and only then is the is the actual image present. And so you know you and because because there's such little imagery the few images that are there appear to be surrounded by darkness. So there's very little visuals, but there's an enormous amount of other sensory elements. There's smell, there's sound, there's, you know, taste. Oftentimes there's sound. And I realize that what he's doing is that he's relying on those elements of the senses which are most which are most visceral, which are most connected to the present tense. So for example, sound is always going to be in the present tense, right? Dialogue is always going to be in, occurring in real time. That makes sense, right? And so what he's doing is, so he's, he's emphasizing certain sen- senses and de-emphasizing other senses. And so I thought, you know, I wonder if I can do the reverse, right? So if my problem is that the world, that, this, that, that my scenes have too much viscerality, Maybe I can empty out, strip it of that viscerality. So I began writing, uh, I began each draft with a, whenever I would finish a draft, I would just begin a new draft with an empty screen. Uh, And I began writing it again, keeping in mind that I wanted no sound, I wanted no smell, I wanted almost nothing, just the visuals. And I realized that when you write like that, it moves very fast right and so i was the it because there's very little and so if you're moving you, you're moving very fast scenes are not visceral so readers can enter into a scene with very little friction and they can exit a scene with very little friction which which solved my problem of how to write this book which has almost no plot the the problem is that that there tends there's a reason that fiction has best practices, right? There's a reason that we tend to use certain senses that we use them in a certain order. There's a there's a reason why all of the, why there are these basic rules or basic tendencies, which is that if you if you eliminate if you walk away from these rules, you're going to make fiction appear l- more fictional. You're going to rob rob it of its reality, and so. What I did, I wrote this book and it felt sort of fake. And so I then had to go back in and plump it up and make it more real. And so I put in, so I began going in and doing, using various devices like uh, humor or the oddity of observation, all these other ways where it is the characters that are real, that are undeniable. And so, and then of course, once you, once that structure is there, then you have to sort of keep in mind what exactly the reader is willing to bear with so my personal belief is mostly readers don't want to hear much about physical misery right you need to sort of present physical misery to sort of prove the fact that you know what the hell you're talking about uh you know but then they don't really want to hear more of it a little goes a long way there's a challenge to this because how do you because the the reality of writing about illness is that the, the, the misery is so constant and the misery keeps varying. So first you have one horror then you have a new one. Fantastic! And then a third one. Uh, so for example my brother uh, you know because he lay like this all the time for some reason the skin of his underarms began to fuse with the skin of his torso. My parents did not want to go to the hospital because they were so scared of the hospital they hated it so much and so what they began doing was my father each morning would take a razor and cut the skin and so you know it basically he created this enormous wound Uh, and a little goes a long way you know you can't put in this sort of stuff and expect to be able to do two or three of these images Uh, or you know my brother was brain damage because of oxygen deprivation? The brain damage also led to him having periodic convulsions. The convulsions then caused more brain damage. You know, it was like an avalanche, you know, more and more stuff falls off. The problem is, you know, really, do readers want that level of depression? And so you have to, at least for me, I had to be very aware of this, like how much I want to take my reader with me. And so I had to just decide how, how could I align my interest with my readers. Like to some extent, the truth of, if I'm interested in telling the truth of this experience, that I need to tell about these things. But if I, to what extent, what is the least that I can tell for it to feel truthful to me? So these were all things that were going on in my head as I was writing them. Uh, I'm going to read to you a little bit just because uh, you can, see, I, maybe I can talk a little bit about sort of the, some of the technical things that I was thinking. Uh, I, when I was a child, I thought my father had been assigned to us by the government. This was because he appeared to serve no purpose. When he got home in the evening, all he did was sit in his chair in the living room, drink tea. And read the paper. Often he looked angry. By the time we left for America, I knew that the government had not sent him to live with us. Still, I continued to think that he served no purpose. Also, I found him frightening. You know, the. For me, there were various things going on as I was writing this thing. One of the one of my impulses was that I wanted to memorialize uh, what occurred to my brother. You know, my poor brother got lost. I. I'm not going to let him get lost. You know, I'm gonna write a book where he is not lost. That was one of my impulses. The the community that I come from, the Indian American community, is a community that I love, that I'm very proud of. There was a period when the, the community was forming itself in the seventies and eighties, when everybody was running so hard that it's actually hard to remember all the weird details of that period. You know the fact that um, that grocery stores tended not to have produce, right? And so, if you wanted, you know, certain vegetables, you had to go to Chinatown. Uh, that you, that there weren't many places, many towns that had temples. So you would meet in people's houses, sit in their basements, and listen to tape recordings of prayers. All of these things I wanted to capture. That was part of my, you know, if I'm going to put in this much work, I'm going to make this book do what I want it to do, you know. And part of what I wanted was that, to preserve that community. The, and one of the ways to do it is to be charming. And one of the ways to be charming is to be funny. And to be funny, but to also be truthful. Now I personally, as a child, taught all sorts of strange things. So I thought that my father had been assigned to us by the government, because I wondered what the hell does this guy do? You know, all he does is sit around and eat, you know drink tea. Somebody, my one of my teachers once asked me what my father's hobby was, and I said it was it was reading the newspaper in the bathroom. <laughs> you know, so the, and the reader can recognize the truth of this, and the truth of it will. Uh, Goes a long way in developing a relationship with the reader um, the so that was one sort of thing that I was doing. another was um you know i was you know I was writing about my family and there were there were limits as to how truthful I could be because I was afraid not so much of causing pain right because frankly my belief is you know if you did this shit then it's your problem it's not mine right shame on you not on me Uh, but again simply would it keep the reader from reading Uh, and so I was interested so I wanted to describe my parents but also pull away when it became too much Uh, so I you know this is sort of how I wrote about my parents as far back as I can remember My parents have bothered each other. In India, we lived in two cement rooms on the roof of our two-story house in Delhi. The bathroom stood separate from the living quarters. It had a sink attached to the outside of one of the walls. Each night, my father would stand before the sink, the sky full of stars, and brush his teeth till his gums bled. Then he would spit the blood into the sink and turn to my mother and say, Death, Shubha, death. No matter what we do, we will all die. Yes, yes, beat drums, my mother said once. Tell the newspapers too. Make sure everyone knows this thing you have discovered. Like many people of her generation, those born before independence, my mother viewed gloom as unpatriotic. To complain was to show that one was not willing to accept difficulties, that one was not willing to do, do the hard work that was needed to build the country. My father is two years older than my mother. Unlike her, he saw dishonesty and selfishness everywhere. Not only did he see these things, but he believed that everybody else did too, and that they were deliberately not acknowledging what they saw. My mother's irritation at his spitting blood, he interpreted as hypocrisy. The You know, people have asked me how I knew the book was almost done. And um, there's certain qualities in the prose which I sort of see as my fingerprints. So for me, really wonderful things, you know, the most ecstatic things in the world, in life, are right next to idiocy. So when I begin seeing sentences uh, such as, each night my father would stand before the sink, the sky full of stars, and brush his teeth till his gums bled. I felt, OK, this cake is nearly baked. Uh, and I'm also, look, my personal belief is that everybody is right and everybody is wrong, right? That, that, that that's just sort of the nature of how life is. And so for me, that it's important that my character seem that way. And so the mother is correct in chiding the father and saying, you know, what's the value of all this gloom? But she is wrong in that her motivation is largely what will other people think or how do I present myself? And the father is wrong in taking such pleasure in being negative. Except for the fact that, you know, if you live in India, probably you should be cynical about everything. Uh, and so when I began to see these qualities, I began to think, okay, this thing is nearly done. The, you know, I asked my parents, uh, before I, when I began writing the book, I asked their permission and uh, my mother said, Akhil, just make me look good. <laughs> uh, my father does not read, right? He doesn't read and nor does he believe that anybody else reads either. He thinks that they're being pretentious you know acting like uh they're better than him by saying that they read um and so he said akhil if you want to keep a secret put it in a book (laughs) when i finished the book right when the galleys were done i asked my father if he wanted to read it and he said why i was there (laughs) the you know there's hundreds you know i'm gonna i'm gonna stop there but There were hundreds of little battles that were fought in the writing of this book, right? Uh, So for example, where in the the third chapter the accident occurs, because typically you would want in a a story to have the accident, in a novel, in a typical novel, to have the accident occur near the end of a chapter, uh, because that launches you into the next chapter if you put it in, if you put it, uh, but if you put it at the end of a chapter then you're risking this issue of coincidence. If you, where you put in the, in the, and near, the, so then maybe should we put in near the start of a chapter, okay, where do you put it into the start of the chapter where where you can bury the fact that a new, that a, a plot machine is being, uh, the engine of the plot is being turned. Uh, you know, the, for me, the easiest thing in life is to write beautifully. You know, Coming out with one lovely image after another is not a hard thing, right? And so finding my preference, though, is to have uh, life and language walk side by side. And periodically, uh, there are times, though, when life outstrips language and language has to sort of hurry up keep up with it you know so there's a uh, there's very f- few moments of uh, uh, <coughs> metaphor or simile inside the book uh, there's one time where the, the protagonist Ajay kisses a girl for the first time and he finds it so extraordinary that he describes it as uh, like holding her like holding a bouquet and so periodically you have to let language hurry up uh, because life itself is so extraordinary so the I mean there's You know, I'm not totally sure about all, I mean, there are many ways that I can talk about the book, and I'm sure you have many interests, and I would be delighted to respond to whatever your questions are. Uh, Thank you.
3: specific in mind
2: about who that reader was or would you just a blur? Sure. You, know, uh, you know, I began writing when I was in high school, writing seriously and diligently. Uh, and I began writing largely out of, des- out of a desire to bother people. You know, I was unhappy and so I want to find out a way to bother other people. You know, why should you get to be happy when I'm miserable? That was largely my motivation. The, the, the audience, the imaginary audience that I have is an, an audience of people who don't read. So people like my parents, right? That is the imaginary audience. They're, that audience that doesn't read uh, can basically tell if they're bored or if they're interested. But they can't evaluate a work in a in a way that is more sophisticated than that, the I didn't want to write without. When I I want to when I write to write something that I can be feel very proud of, you know that uh, I can, and so the question is how to feel that pride, and so there's a second audience which is the audience of the writers that I admire, um, and so it is that. Both of those audiences need to be satisfied. You know the the general audience. That's to to some extent. When I say that general audience, that audience is actually it almost becomes what is. That's the tradition that I write in. The tradition that I write in is legible prose, uh, where there's a narrative that is that has compelling characters and a compelling situation, and where on every single page or paragraph, there is some reason to keep moving forward. That's the tradition that I write in. The audience, and that tradition, of course, requires an imaginary audience. There is a secondary audience, of course, which is the writers within that tradition, uh, and also outside of that tradition. You know, many writers love books which are nothing like what they themselves write. Should I just point or? Yeah. Sir? Uh, thank you for your narrative autopsy. Uh, you said that your parents didn't hate at the hospital. mm mm-hmm. Yep. Tell, tell us why? Oh, you know, the. they were very unhappy, right? And so they could have been in heaven, right, <coughs> taking care of a sick child and they would have hated heaven, right? So let me begin with that. Like, if I'm unhappy, I will be irritable. With, with everything around me. So that's the first thing. Within that, um, we had constant problems. Uh, so we had problems in that in the first hospital that we were in, the, my brother had his own room and they wanted, I, there were issues of insurance where they said that, that they, they no longer were obligated to keep him and so he had to leave. Uh, and our insurance was being slow, was slow in paying and all sorts of problems. And so the, the, comp- the issue was that my the administration of the hospital was, being un- was putting pressure on my parents. That was one thing that occurred. Another thing that occurred was, so there, another thing that occurred was that care was not perfect. So for example, uh, my brother needed to be turned side to side through the night. And regularly, he would not be. And so we would find him in the morning, having been on one side all night long. Or we would find random things in his bed. We would find uh, thermometers. We would find scissors. We would find rubber gloves. We would find biscuits. Uh, so these sort of things. We, he was supposed to get his medication at certain moments. right? Uh, so he was supposed to get his anti-convulsion medicine at a certain time. With a little bit of uh, half of a can of isocal milk, uh, the nurse wouldn 't give him his milk uh, at the right time, and so she would come later and so she would be putting him in the milk putting in the milk through the gastrointestinal tube, and would give him a whole can which would cause him to vomit, which meant what do we do with the medication that got vomited up uh, and so she felt that that every night she left home. She left him in the hospital, and she was, it was like leaving him in a stairwell, uh, and she couldn't bear it. I mean, I don't know how, you know, Honest, I don't spend that much time in hospitals, so I don't know how good hospitals are at s- taking care of that sort of persistent problem where things need to occur meticulously. I should have mentioned that I've been in practice over 50 years,
0: and I find it that rarely does a physician say to a family, this must be tough. Mm -hmm. They usually say, things will be okay. And that kind of further isolates, Mm -hmm. in terms of assimilation or in terms of community. And just saying, I've even said to families, have you ever wanted to kill your child? Mm -hmm. Because it gives them permission to to at least relate to what some of the frustrations are.
2: Mm -hmm. Yes, madam. Oh, well, I'm sorry. Did you have? I
3: I love your book, um, and I, I loved love hearing this talk.
2: You know, the, the, book has, the book has two beginnings mm-hmm. and two endings, right? So there's a, the book begins with this 40 year old Ajay recalling, talking about what his life is right now. And then it goes back to his childhood. And then it ends at a certain point when he goes to college. And that ending is marked by a little drawing, the only, a doodle of a flashlight. It's the only time there's a drawing or an illustration like that in the book. And then there's the last chapter. Which is sort of a second ending. The the reason for the two beginnings is that by letting the reader know very clearly that something is being recalled, it's a way of putting in putting less pressure on the pain of the moment. If I'm saying to you, Oh yeah, I had cancer, that's very different from saying, I have cancer. So that was the that was the reason for that. The reason the book has s uh, two endings is you know, when you've gone through a crisis, it never actually ends. You know, you are shaped by it. And so, to some extent, you have to acknowledge the fact that uh, you're constantly discovering new problems. It's like um, Saul Bellow said of, uh, his, after his father died, that his father's death was like uh, walking through a plate glass window that for years he kept finding shards of glass. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, sort of the, that's why there is that second ending. The specific issue you have with the last two or three paragraphs, I can tell you else, uh, elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the lady in the very back. Hi, thank you very much. I absolutely love you. I think you might be fantastic.
3: I just wanted to ask one thing that you picked up on earlier about the, kind of the desperation and the the sameness of living with illness and how that would put off your reader or ordinary. Um, for me, the way that you avoided that was by having a child, obviously going through transitions and the hope that that brings to any story. Do you think this story could have ever been written
2: from your mother's perspective? You know, I wrote it from my mother's perspective. <laughs> I, I wrote it from my father's perspective. Uh, I wrote it in third person from my mother's perspective, first person from my mother's perspective. Um uh, could it be written yeah sure it can be done um it's you know you just begin to need to do uh, structural changes you know so that uh you if you want to write something like that right from the point of the thir- from a first person point of view of uh the mother in something like this you might want to be much more interior in the voice you know so there's much less Legibility of action around the character, Uh, and so, and that you need to jump time, so that time stutters a bit. But there's there's lots of technical solutions to. I mean, the answer is yes, and the answer is, uh, I can describe to you how you would do it. The the for me the problem for me the effect that I'm seeking when I'm writing a book, is to generate a whole world. Uh, And so, for me, that requires a certain legibility of the world, Uh, and that I would have had to surrender a tiny bit, more than I wanted to if I wanted to write it from the point of view of the mother. But I did write a draft, several drafts from the point of view of the mother. Yes.
3: the tools for your actual writing style. Um, And there was a chapter um, in the book where you, uh, where where Ajay was reading uh, the theories about Hemingway and Hemingway's writing style. And I guess the process of beginning to write stories for Ajay was something that was, helpful for him to process mm-hmm. what was going on around him. And I guess I was wondering if, if writing this book
2: was a similar experience for you. We, when I was a child and I began writing, when I was in high school and I began writing, um, I began writing. So my brother had his accident when I was in fifth grade, when I was about to start fifth grade. And we brought him to our house when I was in seventh grade, so two years later. And um, the first years, the wheels began to come off the car. Probably when I was in ninth grade or tenth grade, so about two years later. After that, around that time is when I discovered books. And what I found in books was largely the possibility of a different life. You know, of writing as well. That I can I could imagine by writing having a different life. For me, at that point, writing saying, th- putting into words certain things, such as, you know, when I was, um, putting into things certain words and experiences was a way of making value out of those experiences, right? Because otherwise if you're not making value out of those experiences, you're a victim to those experiences. You know, I had a difficult childhood and I want to act like somebody who had an ideal childhood because I'm not going to allow myself to be a victim of that childhood, right? Uh, I want to learn and to be, I want to be able to make use of these things. I, and I remember as a child finding it tremendously useful writing. I don't think writing this, writing this book certainly taught me an enormous amount about my family and about myself and how I process those experiences uh, it was not, I don't think it was uh, helpful in the same way that writing about those experiences when I was a child was helpful. When I suddenly, It suddenly allowed me to uh, find a way of discovering value in my experiences. Mm-hmm. Sir? Could, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about uh, the challenge perspective of a child, because you do, uh, the beginning of the book begins with you, but definitely I think the book to some extent is written from the perspective of a child and that there are things that are not made sense of, there are things that are, you know, that to me seem like deliberate choices or something on your part to make it seem like
3: the world is not really understood by this person and over the course of the book that understanding
2: changes a little bit. Mm-hmm. I was wondering like, how, you could, how you went about thinking about that and... Uh... You know, the first thing to do is to try to avoid it. So, you know, the problem with trying to write from the point of view of a child... I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh. The, it's very hard to write from the point of view of a child because children are to some extent, you know, they don't know the world, right? They can't process it. And so for them, the, the world is sort of this confusion. And so their responses to the world is tends to be simplistic, right or it'll seem chaotic to us their response because we don't understand how they cannot they're unable to process it or what weird way they're processing it. Um, the the If you're trying to write from a point of view of the child, right it would be. You would begin to have to mimic language, the, lang- the diction of the child, you would have to begin mimicking the length, sentence length that a child would use, which, um, which would trap you, right? And so that's not, it's not really, I mean I've tra- I tried it, uh, but it's, it just wasn't giving me the freedom that I needed to generate the experience that I wanted. Have beginning with that first beginning with the the 40-year-old Ajay is a way of sort of folding in an adult sensibility into the child's sensibility. And so you have through the sophistication, you the child may not understand certain things, like may not understand why he's all alone in the house. Uh, he might have responses such as thinking oh man, because of my brother going to the hospital, I missed the end of Gilligan's Island, right? He might have these responses, but that's separate from um, mimicking a child's sensibility. But I'm, I am describing a child's sensibility, I'm not mimicking it. You know, that, that this is, there's a layer, an interpretive layer on that which felt necessary. In the, in the back, I can repeat your question if you want. If you want to begin, I can repeat your question. Uh-huh, plot, yeah. and was that conscious? You know after 7,000 pages, uh, there are lots of them. Um, it was conscious, I mean that sense of not letting the reader know what's happened to this thing, to this, to this boy, it was conscious. And uh, leaving that sense of open-ended, that is conscious. Um, I did a draft where the brother died and uh, it makes it feel less dangerous. And the reader is less in danger because this time bomb that we have been watching has not exploded yet.
0: I want to thank you for this gift that you've given us in the form of this book. Uh, the way you've memorialized your brother and also memorialized that very important period of Indian American history in the 70s and 80s uh, that you've depicted in such great detail uh, with such aliveness. Uh, it was the same generation that I grew up in. came to America when I was six and seven and seven. I felt such a connection and commonality to that experience and yet realizing that our experiences are so singular. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was a very powerful awakening uh, during the process of of, of reading the book. Um, And I also really appreciated your generosity with sharing uh, the craft of writing. I think that's so important. Uh, When we talk about writing with the medical students and with the faculty and with the staff that we work with, It certainly is about content and about what you discover in the process, yet so much of it is about craft. How can we uh, refine our craft in in so as to see our world in greater clarity? And I appreciate that you disclosed that to us. I also found it interesting uh, that you talked about how you had to really titrate how much of the brutal reality that you were able to share with your readers. And this really paralleled what what Ajay did in the book, in the sense that he spun wild stories about his older brother, and then vacillated from that to also describing kind of brutal truths to people and felt the impact it had on on others. Um, But I'm wondering, in the actual process of suffering, is there an opportunity to ever share the full truth of suffering with others, or is it always about titration is there a space and place and time to actually share the
2: full truth? Uh, I mean, I don't really know what a full truth is, right? Uh, because you know, our truth varies moment by moment. You know the when I, you know, there's so many moments of of little joys, um, so, so many moments of sort of confusion, so many moments of sort of self-awareness as to how do we, uh, oh, I'm going down this path again, I've been down here before, what can I do to not make myself unhappy? You know, there's so, that the, to some extent, the whole truth, that, that idea of an absolute truth uh, I don't know if it can if it is possible the first thing that Tolstoy ever wrote other than his diaries was a book which was something like diary which was uh, a section of a of a novel called Diary of a Day where he tried to do something like that uh, and I don't know if it can be done and I also don't know whether it's productive you know there's um uh, in his in a story called Diary of a Madman Tolstoy talks about this guy who's going through severe depression and panic attacks, who one day is at church and suddenly thinks, oh, suddenly comes to this realization that, oh, the people around me are pretty much the same as I am. Right? That they are afraid the way that I'm afraid. That they get confused the way that I get confused. That they love the way that I love. And if all of these things are true, then then I cannot die. Because almost everything that is me will continue to live, mm-hmm. uh, and so when we when we try to communicate with others, when this idea of complete truth i don 't know how much uh, i i mean I think that uh, when somebody puts their arm around you, uh, you know you should know that uh that this uh, that the person who is doing that to you has also had their arm put around them, uh, that, and so, th- complete communication is occurring, uh, because we're basically this we're mostly the same. So complete communication is occurring and is occurring all the time. The idea what we think of as essential, you know, how I feel or this particular moment or this little detail. Is probably not essential. That's, um, I mean that's sort of my perspective on it, um, but I'm not, uh, can you, I mean another way is can you share all these, you know, one litany of bad thing after another. I mean certainly I can share that to with somebody I love because that person loves me and if this is important for me to share, they'll, they'll be willing to listen to it but your reader is not there because they love you you know you this is a i mean i view my self as a writer as providing a service and me wanting something in return from my reader and what i want from my reader is that certain that i want attention for these things that are important to me and so what am i willing to sacrifice to get those that get that attention what am i not willing to sacrifice
3: I want to preface my question um, by saying I have not read the book. Um, but now that I
2: have. you bought it?
1: Yeah. <laughs> I will.
2: Thank you.
3: I'm glad I am that I've heard you speak about it. I'm, I'm very intrigued. And um, the other preface to the question is that I'm a medical sociologist and a disability studies scholar. So I teach a lot of pre-med students mostly about issues of disability. Um, in terms of disparities in care that people with disabilities get within our healthcare system and the lack of um, uh, adequate home care policies in terms of there are millions of families right that are caring for somebody with a disability at home so that's sort of my how i'm coming at being here and listening to you today and I'm, i was just wondering um when you were writing the book did you have any kind of um Agenda or larger um, desire to communicate this experience to people, so they might think about some of these larger structural issues that may shape the kinds of experiences that you have so intimately had, and that your family faced. And I was just curious if that was part of your process at all, if even subtly.
2: Uh, you know, I I don't to the extent that agenda suggests within it some hope of political change, right? Uh, I don't have that belief that my fiction can do so. It, it might be possible that these things occur, uh, but I don't have that belief, so I didn't have an agenda in, in that, if, if I were defining agenda in that way. Uh, I didn't even have a desire to talk about this situation in general. You know, I had a desire to talk about this situation in specific. I knew, of course, that this thing is a shared experience. Um, And I was hoping that it would be of comfort to people. Um, But it wasn't
0: beyond that.